I've been doing so much work on Sunday's message, the, uh, the application time, the, a couple future messages, like future messages in Revelation, this handbook. I have no clue what's going to come out tonight. Um, so I'm just getting a little disclaimer. Uh, whatever comes out, it might be partly like school, like here's the rules for the school. It might be Revelation. It might be Acts. I don't know. So you're in store for who knows what's going to happen tonight. Anyway, all right, let's have a couple of little trivia questions about Revelation thus far to see if we've been paying any attention. So I'm going to start with a very, very, very difficult question. How many churches are addressed in Revelation? Debbie? Seven. Very good. Christina didn't raise her hand, but she got it first. Very good. I didn't ask you to raise your hand. It's okay. It didn't. It's all right. All good. All right, next question. This is a very tough one as well. How many churches have we studied thus far, and what are they? Nate? Yeah, but how many of them have we studied? Two. And what are the names? It's hard to hear that voice behind you, isn't it? It's like many of us with the Holy Spirit. It's just hard to hear. Muna. Yeah, like Klingon and everything else. Ephesus and Smyrna, Smyrna, not Smyrnoff Ice or whatever that is. Not that. Um, some of you just might be confused, so I just wanted to throw that out there. Um, all right, out of the seven churches listed, only two of them did not receive a word of criticism or correction. Which two were they? I briefly mentioned it last week. Christina? Philadelphia and Smyrna. Very good. Smyrna, Smyrna, whatever you want to say. <laughs> Potato, patata, tomato, tomato, whatever. Texas, y'all, whatever. Well, I mean, even that, like Alvord, Alvoid, what, you know, whatever. Say, say whatever you want, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Some of you just can't read is what it comes down to. Proper English. Come to our Christian school. We will help you with that. All right, uh, let's see here. All right, here's another one. Out of the seven churches listed, only one church did not receive a word of commendation or a word of praise. Which church is that? Laodicea, very good, very good. All right, uh, another question, not really kind of a review question, but kind of a starter question tonight. And I know sometimes when I ask questions, I was kind of joking with the staff this week, you know, I guess part of me is like, why aren't people answering? But then my wife has to remind me that some of those questions aren't really easy. They're easy to me because I've been thinking about it all week. I'm like, you guys should just know the answers because I've been dwelling on it all week. So I understand that some of the questions I ask aren't necessarily easy questions. They're thought-provoking questions. But I'm going to ask this one, and it is a thought-provoking question. What do you think are some of the great great threats to the church today? Some of the great threats to the church today. Anybody? I know it's kind of a deep, probing question. Jones is like, oh, well, that's... where do you want me to start? Randy, he does. What? TV. TV. It's a great threat to the church. All right, what else? Social media. Okay, what else? Apathy. Apathy. It's very good. Discouragement. Nate's trying to get the answer. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, Adam. It was just like, what is it? What is it? <laughs> Totally. What'd you say? Discouragement? Yeah. yeah, I think it's good. Very good. For the Alan? Hey, shh. Say what? I'm sorry, they're talking. Hey, guys. Lately, our government. Yeah, that's a great threat to our church. Oh, man, these guys. Anyway, uh, what else? What else? What are some great threats to our church? Hey, come back over here. Or sit there, whatever. Where's your mother? What else? What are some great threats to the church today? Anybody else? Legalism and the other extreme being super liberal. Legalism and the being super liberal. All right. Corona. Corona. <laughs> hey, being honest, yeah. Uh, corona can't be a great threat. Um, let's see here. Mm, trying to figure out how I want to ask this question. Let me go ahead and jump into the notes and I'll ask a question because I think it's one of the first points. You know, since its inception, since the church's inception, the church has struggled to understand a very valuable lesson throughout her history. The greatest dangers are almost never from the outside. I think I have those blanks for you guys. The greatest dangers are almost never from the outside. They're almost always from the inside. 
Now, the church is affected from the outside, uh, outside forces, persecution. But some of the greatest threats to the local church are from within the body of believers. And we've said it before, and we're going to talk about that tonight a little bit. Now, with that being said, how, how would you, before I even kind of jump into this tonight, how would you, how, uh, how do I want to ask this? Why, do, why would you think that the greatest threat would be internal over external? Rodney? We let our, we let our own thoughts, our own desires, uh, sometimes I would say influence us too much. Okay. Okay? So, and, and you know, yeah, we, we want to follow what God has for us, but, but sometimes... Our flesh gets in the way. Yeah, I agree. I agree. You know, um, you know, it's not a lecture, but. Father's Yeah. You know, yeah. I think that's to me that's to, that's a, to me that's a big risk. Yeah. Uh, like big danger to the church. That's good. Tasha. Um, I think that like Satan gets Christians or the people in the church more because um, we're trying to serve God, whereas the people outside of the church are already not doing anything for the Lord. Yeah. That's good. That's right on. Mike. I think we're more. It's, it's more easy to get taken down from the inside because we're looking for outside effects. Mm. And we're not really expecting them from the inside. That's good, yeah. It's easier to get taken advantage of from the inside because we're looking more for the outside instead of the inside because you just think everyone should be on the same page. That commonality, like Rodney was kind of referencing, and that, that unity. David, you have your hand up or not? Um, no, but um, I, I guess uh, maybe sometimes we uh, let things that we consider small sins creep by. Okay. Yeah, that's very good. I may hit on that tonight. It might be on Sunday, but I know I've studied that here recently. So it's it's, one of the, it's in one of those jumbled things up here. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Hey, that's what we're going to talk about tonight. With Alan? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I have that in your notes for you. Where's it at? Um, what, well, mine, mine aren't even close. Mine aren't even close to what yours are. So, what, what's it say? <laughs> okay, very good. I've got so many different things. I'm not sure which one I put on there. Uh, nothing will poison a church in the body of Christ like the poison called compromise. Exactly. And what often happens is that we allow. Trojan horses, if you will, into our community that sow seeds of destruction when given the opportunity. David Levy once said that compromise has been a cancer in the church from its inception. And as Brother Allen was attesting to, and others were as well, that's the threat of the church. That's one of the greatest threats of the church, the inside threat of compromise. And that's what we're going to study about tonight just for a few minutes as we look at this third church, this church of Pergamos, or also referred to the city of Pergamon. So let's go ahead and read here uh, Revelation chapter number 2, starting in verse number, where are we at? Uh, 12, thank you, very good. I'm all over the place, so thank you. Uh, and to the angel of the church of Pergamos, write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. A lot of times these characteristics of Christ, which we'll allude to in just a minute, uh, are pointing back to that indescribable Christ that we talked about in reference at the end of chapter 1. So as we study chapter 2 and 3, some of these things are already have already been given to us at the end of chapter 1 or the middle part of chapter 1, if you want to go back and you can kind of reference that. Verse number 13, I know thy works. Again, this is Jesus talking about how he knows us truly and he loves us you know, deeply and he is zealous for us. That he knows what we're doing, good and bad, all 
everything in between. I know thy works and where thou dwellest. Now this is very important, especially with this church at Pergamos and uh, here in the city of Pergamon, uh, which we'll get to in just a second. But notice what he says here as John is writing to this church. Even where Satan's seat is. So this is the seat of Satan. That's pretty strong language there. And thou holdest fast my name. So you're still doing what you're supposed to be doing and hast not denied my faith. <clears throat> Even in those days we're in Antipas. And it's a very interesting story. We don't know a lot about Antipas. Um, but I want to reference that in just a minute, like we did about Polycarp last week, was my faithful martyr. So remember, early on in church history, there were many people that were martyred, which means they died for their faith in Jesus Christ because the world, the outside, was against them. So Jesus is commending them. He's praising them. Who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee. This we get to the criticism. Behold, or Because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Strong language, Jesus telling the church things that he hates. And then verse 16, Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for this day. And Lord, I pray that you be with us as we study your word tonight, as we continue this study in the book of Revelation, and the seven churches specifically. God, I pray that you'd help clear my mind of all the other things that are going on and things that I've been working through and studying through, Lord. And I pray that you'd help me to focus for the next few minutes on this church at Pergamon, uh, Pergamos and the things that we can apply to our own church, Lord. There are so many great applicable truths as we study this church that compromised. This was really the compromising church. And Lord, there are a lot of people within the church today that have compromised, compromised their beliefs and even as it was alluded to earlier, people that don't really view sin as seriously as they should. It's not a big deal. It's not that big of a sin. But sin in your eyes is a very big deal. And I pray that you'd help us to, for the next few minutes, just focus on you. Eliminate the distractions. And I pray that you'd help the kids to listen, to, to pay attention, to, to behave. And help us to learn what we need to learn and get what we need to get from your word. We love you. In Christ name I pray. Amen. A couple quick facts about Pergamos. Pergamos or Pergamon. Is a city in modern-day Turkey. It was located about 50 miles north of Smyrna. Um, Pergamos had roughly a population of about a quarter of a million people, 250,000 people roughly. So if you want to put it in, in size equivalent here in Texas, roughly about the size of a, a Plano or Irving or even Lubbock. Uh, if there was one word, though, that summed up this city, it was this word, proud. They were a very proud city. There were several reasons for their pride. Pergamos was the official capital of the Roman province in Asia Minor. It was an incredibly beautiful city, as many of the cities along the, the, the trade route, as we're going to study, were very beautiful cities. It was built on a rocky hill about 15 miles from the coast. They, they were high enough up where they could see the Mediterranean coastline on a very clear day. Pliny, the elder, one of the elders in the early church, he said this about Pergamos. Pergamos is the most illustrious and most beautiful city in all of Asia. Some other facts. Very interesting though. This was a city of culture. The city had beautiful buildings and theaters, and its greatest cultural asset was its library. It had over 200,000 scrolls inside of its library, second only at that time to the library in Alexandria. It had temples dedicated to Dionysus, Athena, Demeter, and to Asclepius who is the god of healing, whose insignia, we actually know in reference today, was the entwined serpent on the staff, which is what used in the medical world today. Now, Satan, of course, is likewise symbolized as the serpent. Pergamos was a great city, but also a very idolatrous city. Uh, pagan idol worship was rampant in the city. A couple more things of fact to make note of. They had four massive temples to the Greek gods, and the biggest and the best temple that they had was dedicated to the Greek god Zeus, who many of us have probably heard of, referenced before. 
Pergamon was the official center for emperor worship and was the first city that was able to build a temple to the worship of a living emperor. So all the other temples that were built were in honor of an emperor that had died. But this is the first city out of 11 other cities that was able to build a, a temple to worship a living emperor. So think about that in reference today, that if in America we're going to worship our president, worship President Trump, there would be a temple dedicated to the worship of President Trump. So that's kind of what was going on in Pergamon, that they was a, it was a very wicked, very idolatrous, very pagan-centered city. And imagine living in a city like that. Now, we, we can probably reference that here in America with some of these churches that we think of just, just wicked and idolatrous. But really, it pales in comparison to even some of the cities that we have. Just imagine trying to be a Christian in a city that is openly worshiping false gods. Openly worshiping false gods. How difficult that must have been for all of those within that city. And as we'll look at, it's very easy to start compromising. Very easy to go a direction that you know is not right, but everyone else is doing it. So it's not that big of a deal, right? We've all heard that mantra, that phrase, everyone else is doing it, it's no big deal. Well, it is a big deal before God, and that's what we'll look at tonight. So let's go ahead and jump right into it. Uh, the church at Pergamos faced some stiff and zealous opposition from within and without, but her greatest opposition was from within. The characteristic of Christ, go ahead and write this down if you have your notes, verse number 12, as we see into the angel of the church at Pergamos, write, these things saith he that hath the, uh, the sharp sword with two edges. So the characteristic of Christ is this, that has a sharp double-edged sword, a sharp double-edged sword. This two-edged sword that John is referencing is none other than what? What is this two-edged sword that John is referencing? The Word of God. God's Word. God's Word is true. It's trustworthy. It is inerrant. It is infallible. And this sword is coming straight from the mouth of who? Jesus. Christ. And what we discover is that the judgment of Jesus is both true and thorough. This Double-edged sword isn't dull. It cuts quickly and cleanly. It hurts, it heals, it cuts, and it cures. Someone read for me. I don't have this in your notes, but turn to Hebrews chapter 4, verse number 12, and someone just read that verse because it kind of talks about this, this double-edged sword. Hebrews chapter 4, verse number 12. Anyone there? For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Yes. Piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and yes. spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Yes. The Word of God is quick and powerful. It's like that two-edged sword that, that cuts, that pierces all of those things. Now, again, now I, I want to reference this very quickly because there's other things I really want to hit on tonight. As we look at this characteristic of Christ, he is, he is giving the, the analogy that he is the, this double-edged sword. Now, it's very important because it's also very symbolic. Now, one thing I love as I've studied these seven churches and in reference to what John is writing to them, uh, a lot of what John is writing is very cultural. And what I mean is they would understand exactly what John is, is talking about because John is kind of hitting on things that the culture is dealing with and then he's showing them a better way. Now, what I mean by this is that um, the Roman government was in charge of the culture at that time. They had a, an empire in this world. And Rome wielded a sword on earth as the ultimate human power. But what John is saying is that there is someone with a sword greater than Rome. <laughs> and who has the sword greater than Rome? Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate authority. So what he is trying to do right off the bat is he is trying to encourage them that don't fear human government. Even though they might be powerful, there is someone more powerful than any government, than any empire in the world. In the world. And for us, it's more important that the church fear Christ's sword than any governmental control. And that's very important for any age. And we're even understanding that today in America with some of the governmental control that is happening in certain states, in certain cities, uh, trying to control the church. We should not fear governmental control more than we fear God, more than we fear His Word and what He wants us to do. Now we get to the second point, the commendation or the praise to the church in verse number 13. Look what it says. I know thy works. Again, Jesus is saying, hey, I know what's going on. 
So what he is talking about here, I'll just go ahead and quickly give it to you. Faithfulness, honor for the name of Jesus, and refusal to deny faith in Christ. Faithfulness, honor for the name of Jesus, and refusal to deny faith in Jesus Christ. Where he says again, I know thy works and where thou dwellest. I, I know what you're doing. I know where you live. And I know where you live. It's pretty wicked. It's, I, you know, we talk about, you know, like Las Vegas here in America is known as what? Sin City. So he's saying, I know exactly where you live. It's, it's Sin City. It is, it is wicked. It's the seat where Satan dwells. Uh, I, I know what you're going through. Man, again, I, I can't imagine, you know, being in a town where it is known for the seat of Satan. Satan worship. You know, he had his altar there where the temple of Zeus was at. But Jesus is trying to encourage them, as I spit all over the place, in verse 13. I know where you dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast my name. I want to commend you for that. I want to encourage you for that. Because you have done what you're supposed to do. You haven't denied my faith. And in those days, where in Antipas, now this is very important, Antipas was my faithful martyr. We don't know a lot about Antipas. But one thing we do know is that he was a martyr in the early church. Now, quickly about Satan's seat. You know, we can go off about this, but I like how one preacher put it. He said, hell is the place of the devil's incarceration, but the world is the place of his operation. So he dwells within this world, trying to operate within this world. And there at Pergamon, that was his seat, his headquarters in this ancient world. Now, Pergamon was obsessed Understand this, they were obsessed with a love of the state. Patriotism had crossed the line into idolatry. Now, I could easily go off on that for a little while, but I won't. But think about this. That's one of the reasons that the church compromised, and we'll look to in just a minute. There was such a love for the state. They loved the Roman Empire. They were a beautiful city. And they had built temples dedicated to the Roman Empire and the Roman emperors that were there and there was a great sense of patriotism. Now, I think we should have a great sense of patriotism. But I think and I fear that many people cross the line between patriotism and Christianity. You know, I'm all about our flag, and I'm all about reverencing our flag and, and respecting it. But we can't put God and America on the same page. We can't put God and America on the same level. And there are a lot of people that struggle with this idea that, oh, God loves America. Yeah, He loves America, but He loves the whole world. <laughs> he loves everyone. You know, I'm thankful to be born in America and live in America, but there are some, and even some churches, that it's all about patriotism and patriotic pride. No, it's all about the gospel. Amen. That's what it's about. And that's part of the reason why Pergamon went astray because patriotism had crossed the line into idolatry. And I'll reference this later, but here's the, here's the reality, that even good things can become God things. It's good to have pride in your country. It is. But even a good thing like that can become a God thing when it's elevated to a position where it shouldn't be elevated to. And if we're elevating America, and we're elevating our president, and we're elevating this and that over Jesus Christ... Therein lies the problem. Therein lies the problem within the church. I'm all about having a flag, but it's not about American pride. It's not about Texas pride. <laughs> what it should be about is gospel pride, really. It should be about pride in Jesus Christ and reverencing Him, worshiping Him. You see, follow whatever God you want to is, was, was the idea here in this culture Follow whatever God you wanted to as long as it didn't get in the way of public duty and obedience and patriotism to the government. And we're even seeing that in some facets today. You do whatever you want, but you know, you just make sure you follow our mantra. Whether it's this Antifa or whether it's the opposite side of patriotism and pride for America. You know, you go to whatever church you want to, but you just make sure you do what we tell you to do. That's wrong. And that's what was going on here in Pergamon. You see, this imperial cult, this imperial worship of the state was embodied in their emperor, and it's a major problem behind Revelation as a whole, as the core religion here in Pergamon. As we continue on in verse number 13, look at this. 
He is encouraging them. He is commending them, praising them for their faithful witness. And he's saying, hey, be faithful in your witness. Smyrna was described as a martyr's church. And to an extent, so could Pergamon. Their faithful witness had resulted in the martyrdom, the killing of one of their own Antipas. And honestly, we don't know a lot about Antipas. He might have been the pastor of this church. He might have just been a a good Christian soldier of Jesus Christ. We don't know much. And I don't want to try to scare people, but that's why I kind of read about Polycarp. And I want us to understand some of this early church history because it's very important. It's very important to understand this. But tradition tells us, listen to this, that he was roasted inside of a brass bull on the altar of Zeus. It's disgusting some of the things that the early Christians went through. We should thank God that we don't have to endure some of the suffering that they went through, but quickly they would take a victim, place him inside of a bull, and would tie him in such a way that his head would go into the head of the bull. Then they would light a huge fire underneath the bull, this brass bull, And as the fire heated the bronze, the person inside the bull would slowly begin to roast to death. And as the victim would begin to moan and cry out in pain, his cries would echo through the pipes in the head of the bull, so it seemed as if the bull was coming alive. It's disgusting when you think about it, and that's exactly the death that Antipas faced. And that's exactly the kind of death that Christians faced in that early first century. And it's important to note those things and understand those things And even for kids, it's important to understand our heritage, you know, where we came from and and the freedoms that we have here in America and in our Christian faith, and I'm thankful for those things. And again, I want to encourage you, if you have a chance, to to read books like Fox's Book of Martyrs and uh, what was it, The Voice of Martyrs, the other one that I talked about in reference, some of the things that they went through. It should make you thankful that we don't have to endure those things. But it should also put a deep sense of reverence and awe and respect for Jesus Christ, knowing that if they were willing, literally, literally willing to suffer for Jesus, why shouldn't we? You know, what are we doing? You know, Jesus is commending, though, his church for their faithful witness, and he's commending Antipas. We go on, the criticism, this is where it starts getting, you know, deep tonight. Verses 14 and 15, let me read these quickly. But I have a few things against thee. So after he's already praised them, all right, now I got some things to talk about. Because thou there them, or because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, and I'll reference this a little bit later in the message, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. We reference this in the church of Ephesus as well. Which thing I hate. So here's the criticism. You hold the teachings of Balaam, which is spiritual compromise, leading to idolatry and sexual immorality and the teachings of the Nicolaitans. So here's the criticism that Jesus has for his church at Pergamos. You hold the teachings of Balaam, which is spiritual compromise, and again, we'll dive a little bit deeper in just a second, leading to idolatry and sexual immorality and the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now listen, just because some are faithful doesn't mean everyone is. Let me say that again. Just because some are faithful in a church doesn't mean everyone is. Jesus commended, praised Antipas for his faithfulness, right? But that didn't mean that there was a church full of Antipases. There were a church full of compromisers. And that's true in every church that there are people in the church that are faithful to Jesus Christ. Faithful to listen to him, to obey him, to serve him. But that didn't mean everyone is. You think about your own family. There's probably even people in your own family that you know, might be committed Christians, but there are also people in your own family that aren't, could care less. Same is true in a church. There are people that want to serve God, want to love God, want to live for God, and then there are some that are not. And really, the last part of this letter is for those that aren't wanting to serve God. There are compromisers. Notice the warning right off in verse 14. I have a few things against thee. This doctrine of Balaam, this doctrine of the Nicolaitans, this talking about this spiritual compromise. Now listen, compromise is not about bringing the world into the church. It's being too much like the world and still trying to act like a church. Let me say that again. Compromise is not about bringing the world into the church. We need the world into the church so they can get saved. 
It's being too much like the world and still trying to act like a church. Compromise defined is this, to undermine or devalue somebody or something by making concessions or agreeing to accept less than what was originally wanted. Now, compromise isn't always a bad thing, but it is when it comes to what Christ has designed for his church. Think about compromise. Sometimes there has to be compromise or concessions made in a relationship or in a marriage. But when it comes to Christ, there is no compromise. There is no concessions. What he says goes. It's not, well, you know what? Maybe I'll do this. Maybe I won't. Maybe I'll live for him today. Maybe I won't. No, but that's how we treat God. That's how we treat our relationship with Jesus. Well, today, if I feel like it, I'll read my Bible. I will live for God. But most of us don't say, you know what? Today, if I feel like it, I'll you know, eat. Like, we eat because we know we need to. We know we need to eat. Just like it's true in our Christian life, we need Jesus. We need His spiritual food to help us, to nourish us. You know, compromising, it's not, it's not even about, you know, pews or chairs or paint colors that I've talked about before. The big deal is about doctrines and principles from God's Word. Look, Satan doesn't have to get you to stop coming to church. He doesn't have to get you to completely deny the faith. Listen, all he has to do is get you to compromise what you believe and what you think is right. And as I said earlier, any good thing can become a God thing. You know what Pergamos means or meant? It meant married. You see, they were married to Christ, but also married to the world at the same time. And what little I know about marriage is that I can't expect to have a good relationship with a man if I'm married to her and then married to something else at the same time or someone else. So how can the church expect to have a great relationship with Christ if they're supposed to be married to him, we are the bride of Christ, and yet we're also married to the world? It's impossible. It doesn't mesh very well. Listen, the church was now doing what the world would applaud. They were open-minded, progressive, tolerant. Sounds like in America, right? We have to be open-minded. We have to be tolerant of these things, of, of people. You know, If they want to dress a certain way, let them dress a certain way. If they want to like someone that they shouldn't like, let them like that person. Well, the God, is, or God is pretty specific on who you should like and who you shouldn't like. God is pretty specific about homosexuality and transgenderism and all that stuff, isn't he? Yeah, he is. But no, let's, let's be tolerant about those issues. No, that's where we're, we're blurring the lines and that's where we as Christians are compromising. And God has some pretty serious things to say to these people that have compromised. You see, they compromised and Christ wasn't pleased. This church at Pergamos had done amazing jobs of withstanding frontal attacks, but they forgot to shut their back door. <laughs> and they let Satan come in Verse 14, basically, here's what he's saying. I'll put it in Texan. <laughs> Y'all got people there that hold to this doctrine of Balaam. I think we can define it this way. Listen, this doctrine of Balaam is this. It's the attempt to make the best of both worlds. The attempt to make the best of both worlds. The earthly world and the spiritual world. And again, many of us, and look, I could put myself in this situation as well. I struggle with this. I struggle with this idea of, you know, being sold out to Christ. I do because I know what it means to be truly sold out to Christ. But then I see some of the things in the world and like, I want that. Right? Anyone with me? Struggle with me? Yeah. I want that. I want to live like that. I, I want to enjoy those things. And there's a, there's a struggle going on, isn't there? And that's this doctrine of Balaam. It's trying to, to make the best of both worlds. Well, I've got Christ, but I've got, a, I've got the world too, and that's, that's what I need. No, you need all of Christ. That's what you need. And nothing of the world. Now, we're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. In short, listen, this doctrine of Balaam is the doctrine that teaches that Christ's followers could embrace the world's teaching while maintaining their Christian distinctiveness. But that's an oxymoron. You can't embrace the world's teaching and still have Christian distinctiveness. You can't. You can't be set apart as a Christian. We are called to be set apart. But how can you be set apart when you are joining in? Anyone have an answer for me? You can't, right? Can you, Mike? No, you can't. 
And he continues on in verse 15. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. The Nicolaitans, listen, believe that sinning was actually a good thing because it gave God another opportunity to forgive you. To show his grace to you. And there are some in America that struggle with this. Well, we're under grace. It's no big deal. I can do what I want, live how I want, be what I want, be with who I want. It's no big deal. It is a big deal. And that's what the doctrine of Balaam, that's what the doctrine of the Nicolaitans are about. (laughs) You can't just sin and think it's a good thing because, well, God has to forgive me. You have a messed up view of God. You have a faulty view of God. You see, the church at Ephesus rejected the Nicolaitans' doctrine, but the church at Pergamos embraced it. The church and individual Christians are, again, supposed to be in the world, not of the world. There's a huge difference there. And doctrine mattered little, and behavior mattered even less. And with each passing day, the distinction between the church and the world became more blurred and less distinguishable. And honestly, that's what's happening in our culture today. That's what's happening in American churches. And that's the struggle that I have as a pastor, as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, to not try to blur the lines. I understand there's things that we do today that might be different than 50 years ago or 100 years ago. But one thing that we should never compromise on is our doctrines, our belief in Jesus Christ. And we can't just say, you know what? It's okay if people live in sin because God's going to forgive them. Because they're under grace. It's no big deal. It is a big deal. It's a huge deal. And again, I I say this kind of stuff often, but we wonder why we're in the mess we're in. Look, you cannot be married to Christ and yet thoroughly married to the world. It does not work out. Go ahead and try to be married to two people at once. Tell me how that works out for you. (laughs) Tell me. (laughs) I'm interested to know. It's not going to (laughs) work. But we struggle with this greatly in our society. I don't even want to know what's going on. (laughs) But just because we're under grace doesn't mean we can live how we want. That's a dangerous view of grace. And that's what's going on here at Pergamos. And really, the application is so true for us today. We can't just accept and be tolerant of the world. It goes back to even Sunday morning, you know, and even this coming Sunday about that gospel boldness. You know, we have to be willing to call out sin. You know, that's one of the reasons why I'm most excited about our Christian school because it gives us a great opportunity to continue to put good Christian, you know, morals, doctrinal morals and, and gospel-centered morals within them. You know, I'm just throwing this out there, and I'm not against necessarily the public school. The public school is wicked. It's downright wicked. And some of the doctrines that are being indoctrinated within our kids... It's hard, to, it's hard to combat that. They're being indoctrinated five days a week, and the church only has them for a couple hours. And it's the scale. Who's going to win out? The world. The world is going to win out. I'm not saying that everyone should put your kids in the Christian school. Right now, we can't, we can't have everyone right now. But the, the, the truth is, that's where parents come in. And if parents are doing their job as a parent, you can combat that. You can combat the indoctrination because, oh, no, 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 I don't care what little Johnny told you at school. That's wrong. And let me show you what the Bible says. That's what it needs to be. And I've seen some parents and grandparents that have taken their role seriously and, you know, didn't just let the kids do whatever they wanted, dress however they wanted. But it's okay. They're just little. <laughs> They're not always going to be little. What are we teaching our kids? Pergamos, that, that's really, that was the culture. That was the culture of this church. It's not that big of a deal. Let them be married to, to, the, to the, the culture around them. Let them be married to the world and let them be married to the church and it's all going to work out. And I'm not trying to go off on this, but even us that have had relationships and, and those that have married someone that's not saved, you understand the struggle, right? The big struggle there is when someone a spouse is not saved and really wants nothing to do with Christ and you're saved and you want everything to do with Christ. Think about how it is with the world and Christianity. And then we get to verse 16, the correction. So Jesus has kind of hit them upside the head. But then verse number 16, hey, repent. Repent of your sins or else. 
Now this is very, very poignant and very interesting to see. If you want to write this down, I think this is your notes. It's repent or face my sword is what, here's what he's saying here before I go on. Repent or face my sword. Well, compromise is one of Satan's favorite and most effective weapons. And Jesus says, repent or else. But Christ doesn't mess around with this church and he doesn't mess around with his church. It doesn't matter what you've done in the past. It doesn't matter how strong you once were in your faith or even if you were willing to die for Jesus Christ. What matters is now. That's what matters. What matters is what you are doing for Christ now. And again, Jesus had already commended them saying, hey, I'm thankful for faithful witnesses like Antipas that was faithful and was even willing to to go through uh, uh, the the persecution and suffering and death for me. But I want to read a couple things in one of my commentaries, and it's very uh, good to understand this. You know, compromise, again, is one of Satan's favorite and most effective weapons, at least for four reasons. First of all, it never occurs quickly, so you hardly ever notice the change. Second thing, it always lowers the original standards that you once held important. Things that you said, this is so important, eventually it's like, eh, it's not that big of a deal. You know what I'm talking about, right? Things that even, I even think about this in, in parenting. Things that, you know, you have that first kid, this is a big deal. Second, third kid, yeah, whatever. <laughs> or the fourth or fifth, right? <laughs> sorry, Aaron, sorry, Ella. <laughs> it's like, well, I don't know what you're talking about. But... All parents understand that. You know, you have certain things in the first kid or even the second kid that, man, this is what we're going to do by the second, third, fourth, eh, whatever, it's not a big deal. But that same thing is true in compromise, though. Third thing, it's seldom offensive because it is perceived as loving. Fourth, it eventually leads you to accept what you once rejected and even thought repulsive. It has been well said that what one, gener- what, one, uh, what one generation tolerates, the next generation will accept. What that generation accepts, the next generation will celebrate. Let me say that again. You want to write that down? You can. What one generation tolerates, the next generation will accept. What one generation tolerates, the next generation will accept. What that generation accepts, the next generation will celebrate. And aren't we seeing that today? Celebrating things that 30, 40, 50 years ago would have never been celebrated. But it happened because we tolerated it. And then we accepted it, and now it's celebrated. That's compromise. I like what Chuck Swindoll says about this church at Pergamon. He says, in concrete terms, Christ demanded that the Pergamon church and Christians amend their attitudes regarding the Balaamites and the Nicolaitans, that they take the necessary actions to remove those false teachings from their midst. The compromise had to end. Christ's call for repentance included a warning for those who refused. If the faithful remnant refused to change their lackadaisical policies, and if the wicked minority continued their libertine practices, Christ would discipline them. He would come swiftly, waging war against them with a double-edged sword, His just discipline as the righteous judge. And it's very interesting as you read this verse, verse 16, Repent or else I will come unto thee quickly and fight against them. It's pretty serious. You know, Christ fights for His church but those that are against him, he will fight against. And that should be a warning and challenge for all of us. Those that have given in to compromise, beware. Either repent or else face the judgment of Jesus. And you don't want to face the judgment of Jesus. The sword of his mouth. And when Jesus addresses the whole church in Revelation 2 and 3, he's talking about them as you. Hey, you. But here he says, I'm going to fight against them. And then we continue on. This image of Christ fighting against His church is really heart-wrenching, though, when you think about it. Because Jesus will deal swiftly with those that have compromised. It's a stern warning for all of us to repent now. And then we see the last thing, the challenge, the blessing, verse 17. 
He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith. So hey, listen to what I'm saying. Don't just put it in one ear and let it go out the other. What the Spirit saith unto the churches, to him that overcometh, I will give eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. So what we see here in this challenge is this. Receive my hidden manna. You'll receive a white stone. And you'll receive a new name. Here's a threefold challenge and a promise that is given to the church if they repent. First of all, Christ will nourish us. This idea of hidden or secret manna reflects the idea that Jesus as the good shepherd will graciously feed his church the spiritual food that they need. It's in reference to the manna that was given to the Israelites back in Exodus. You know, this manna is greater than Chick-fil-A. And Chick-fil-A is pretty good. But this secret hidden manna is what we need. And Christ will nourish us. The second thing we see here in this challenge is that Christ will receive us. This white stone, we don't know exactly what this white stone means, but it does point to our acceptance and victory we have in Jesus Christ, our high priest. You see, Christ is our righteousness. And this white stone could be symbolic of the fact that it can never be taken away from us. And then finally, Christ will acknowledge us. On this is a new name that no one knows except the one that receives it. Greg Beale, a commentary or commentator, he said this. He explained about the new stone or the new name. He said, To receive the new name is to receive Jesus' victorious kingly name that no one knows except himself. Nevertheless, he reveals and imparts it only to his people in an escalated manner at the end of each one's life and fully at the conclusion of history. All things have been given to me by my Father, he says in Revelation. Beale explains the significance of this knowledge as follows. He says, in the ancient world, in the Old Testament, to know someone's name, listen to this, especially that of God, often meant to enter into an intimate relationship with that person and to share in the person's character or power. To be given a new name was an indication of a new status. Therefore, believers' reception of this new name represents their final reward of consummate identification and unity with the intimate end-time presence and the power of Jesus Christ. In His kingdom, under His sovereign authority, this new name is a mark of genuine membership in the community of the redeemed, without which entry into the eternal city of God is impossible. And it starkly stands in contrast to the satanic name that the unbelievers receive, which identifies them with the character of the devil in the ungodly city of man. So we see that Christ will nourish us, receive us, and acknowledge us. And Christ, or John, sorry, he lays down this warning. He tries to encourage us, and I want to try to encourage you quickly tonight as I close this lesson. You know, we talked briefly about compromise, and I could have gone deeper and longer into this idea of compromising, but we understand what compromise is. We understand that it doesn't happen necessarily overnight. It's a slow kind of a habitual thing that continues over time. Before we know it, we could care less about Jesus. We could care less about His church. We could care less about being faithful. But what John is saying is repent if you have fallen and stay faithful to Jesus Christ. Listen, as this key truth, as I wrap this up and close tonight, there is a constant temptation to compromise within the church. But a deeply committed follower of Jesus will remain faithful and receive from the Lord the reward of eternal life. And I want to challenge you tonight as your pastor to don't compromise, to not compromise. And if you have, if you've started, to repent, to turn. Repentance is a turning, a change of action, a change of attitude. Don't be so tolerant of the culture around you, of what is going on and accepting of their sin. We can't accept the sin of the world as okay. We have to realize what God's Word says, and it's time that all of us, myself included, get back to a gospel-centric attitude and lifestyle, meaning that we follow God's Word in everything. All areas of faith and living, God's Word should be our guide, should be our reference point. But how many times is God's Word thrown aside? How many times is, forget about that, I'm going to follow what the culture says. 
I'm going to follow the latest fads and trends and fashions and, and this and that. And well, today we're supposed to like this person. Today we're supposed to like this group of people. So I'll follow that. Why don't we follow this? This never changes. Look at culture. It changes every minute, right? You don't know what's going to happen. Look at the news tonight and look at the news tomorrow. It's going to change. But what never changes is God. What never changes are the promises. So the, the reminder is to don't compromise, to stay faithful to Jesus Christ. And as we continue these letters next week, and you know, next week's going to be another deeply convicting message and letter because what we're met with is a woman in the church, whether it's in the church or whether it's uh, symbolic, by the name of Jezebel. <laughs> there are people in churches like that today that are false teachings and false doctrine and leading people astray and basically that, that kind of the attitude that you know you're under grace so it's okay you can do, live how you want and do what you want and it's not a big deal and that's what we see in this next church this church at Thyatira but man just stay faithful to God I don't care who's compromised around you you don't compromise you don't compromise your faith you don't compromise your convictions and for parents and grandparents here you stay faithful it doesn't matter what your friends are doing with their kids. You do what you know is right from God's Word in raising your family. And let me just tell you something, parents. They're probably not going to like it. But that's okay. Because it's not about being their friend. It's about being their parent. That's what's most important. And what you'll see when you are their parent and you follow biblically what God has given you, they actually do become your friend when they accept the truth of God's Word, when they take it to heart, and it might take years. I mean, it's taken me years to really kind of like my parents, honestly. <laughs> shouldn't say that, but I think every kid, you know, I mean, you love your parents, but you're like, man, what? why do they have these stupid rules? I don't want to follow that. But I've realized now as an adult, having my own family, man, some of those things that my parents did, I'm thankful. Because they weren't just making it up on the fly. They were actually following God's Word, and that's what I'm trying to do with Nate and Noah. And I know there's going to be some things that we do, and even things now that you know, we, we've taken away from Nate or from Noah, and they don't understand. But it's because we don't want them to compromise. We don't want them to fall prey to a marriage of the world and try to marry the world and marry Christ at the same time. You can't, you can't have both. It's not the best of both worlds. I don't care what Hannah Montana said. There is no best of both worlds. Sorry, that goes back to my youth pastor days. <laughs> Now I only think of that song. That's all you're going to think about that song. I'm not going to sing. But don't compromise. Stay faithful to Jesus. And receive that eternal reward that he has promised you.